Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hi there, it's Rusty Keys, and welcome to Utah's Weekly Forum. I am your guest host, in for Rebecca, with FM 100.3. Now, Utah's Coalition Against Pornography, which is also known as UCAP, is going to be holding its Salt Lake City Conference. It's going to be at the Salt Palace Convention Center on Saturday, February the 23rd. And joining me today, I have Autumn, I've got Chris, and I've got Dan. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. Dan, let's start with you. Uh... Tell me a little bit about the upcoming conference, because I got to be honest, I am really excited about the keynote speaker because it's Dayton Moore, general manager of my Kansas City Royals. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yes. just saying he, he and I go. Well, I've never met him, but I go back to the Royals since I was like, you know, teeny tiny. So you feel like you know him well. I know him very well. And I love what he did getting us back to the World Series. But he actually has made strides when it comes to pornography and sports. Tell me a little bit about that and why you've got him coming in. That's right. He's been really a pioneer in this area, dealing with his team, realizing that the effects of pornography can really be very devastating and detrimental to an organization because it affects the individuals, it affects their families, and then it's going to affect the performance of his his players is what he realized. And so he's been very active in inviting uh, the Fight the New Drug and that organization from here in Utah to come back there and uh, be in, help them have them educate his team mm-hmm. on the effects of pornography to try to have that be a focus to facilitate then uh, that word spreading throughout its community. He's been a real pioneer in coming out and, and being very outspoken against pornography and its impact. And tell me a little bit about how do people get their registrations for the for the show, and then let's talk a little bit about what – other aspects are going to be talked about. Okay, well, you can go to the website. Mm-hmm. It's utahcoalition.org, and there they can get the information on the registration. It's $20 per person. If there are four or more people, then it's 20% off of that, and it's $25 at the door. So it's really very reasonable. We wanted to make sure that it was accessible to so many people, and this is the largest conference of this nature in the country. We've been going for about 16 years now. Uh, we've had as much uh, as many as twenty seven hundred people attend this wow. conference on the on the Saturdays. Well, and if you wonder a little bit about what it's like, you can go to the website. That's right. Because the website has got some uh, clips from last year, all put together in a video. And you're right the 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 amount of people who are there and and learning about this is amazing. And you see all walks of life. You see men. You see women. You see some kids because you've got some things that are directly towards kids. I've got two kids. I've got two daughters. Uh, my youngest is seventeen and uh, a senior in high school. So pornography is something that 
is more prevalent today, I think, for teens than it's ever been. Than it's ever been. The accessibility to it is, is uh, you know, it's never been like this in, in our world's history. The accessibility, the affordability, and the, and the uh, anonymity. We call it the three A's of Internet and pornography addiction. But these kids are being exposed at a very, very early age. The average age is about 10 years of age. And so the exposure is wow. tremendous. And not all of them become addicted to it. But they have that exposure, then there's the curiosity, then they experiment, then they develop habitual patterns, and that can lead to addiction. So there are kids that are in their teens that are addicted that are coming in and getting help from our clinics and other places. And that the conference is focused on helping teens. There are are sessions for the teens. There are sessions for parents. There are sessions for uh, uh, clergy, ecclesiastical leaders as well. Uh, and so there, there's something for everyone here who wants to learn about it and know how to deal with it in their family, in their congregations, in their businesses. We cover the whole gamut. It's a really tremendous opportunity. Yeah, I think it is. And it's like you said, it's, it's more prevalent than ever. Uh, but it's interesting, I think, sometimes when you, when you talk about addiction, people immediately think of alcohol. Mm-hmm. They immediately think of drugs. But I don't know that people immediately think of pornography as an addiction. It kind of is one of those I think sneaks up on people a little bit and they don't even realize that they have that problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Rusty. And what we've learned with the scientific evidence now is that the effects of the brain are very similar when we're, say, using cocaine or alcohol, that it's impacting the neurotransmitters of the brain which then impacts our capacity and ability to use our prefrontal cortex, which is the administrative part of the brain that helps us make decisions in accordance with uh, pros and cons, good, bad, principles, values. But when we're functioning from that limbic part of the brain where these drugs impact, then it's difficult to be able to make good decisions. And then we become dependent upon the drugs, for example, to manage life, to deal with stress, to deal with boredom, loneliness, those emotions that people are trying to escape from. So the use of marijuana, alcohol, we know that people go to those things to escape, to self-medicate. Now what we know about pornography and sexual addiction behaviors is that with excessive use time and time again, then habitual patterns are developed and people turn to that behavior just in the same way and become dependent upon that behavior Uh, Because it's affecting the same areas of the brain, the neurotransmitters, the dopamine levels, the the, uh, endorphins, the adrenaline, all of that is activated through the use of then pornography or sexual compulsive behaviors. And then people use those. We call them the uh, – they're they're not the substance abuse issues. They are uh, addictions on behaviors. And uh, so uh, like gambling – overeating, those kinds of reasons mm-hmm. as well. They would call them process addictions. Well, and again, as we think that people don't realize this as an addiction, I think kind of shows up on a, a survey that I saw on your website that talked about teens and young adults, what do they consider immoral? And the, the results were pretty astounding when I looked at them because stealing, 88%. Recycling or not recycling, rather, was fifty fifty-six percent. Overeating, forty-eight percent. But viewing pornograph- uh, pornographic images was only thirty-two percent. So this helps educate 
uh, people with this conference. And again, we're talking about teens and and individuals, but not only individuals, but also how it affects relationships. And that is where we've got Chris and we have Autumn. Guys, welcome. Thank you for coming in to share your story. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about the situation that you guys have had. So from the very beginning? Sure. So, well, Dan hit a good point when he talked about, you know, a lot of the average age is around 10 years old. And that I was like 9 or 10 when I viewed my first pornographic image. And fa- friends found a magazine, and we started looking at those magazines. We'd hide them in a the field next to our house, and uh, we'd go look at them every once in a while. And obviously back then it just wasn't as readily available as it is now. Uh, but then just ever since, ever since then, off and on, I would just – Whenever I'd have an opportunity, then I would go take a look at the magazines or um, if friends had the magazines at their house or whatever, we'd look at them and stuff too. And then as I got older, I never told my wife that I ever had an issue with it because I wasn't going to tell anybody that I ever had an issue with it. Did you know you had an issue at that point? No, I didn't. That's probably another reason why because I was like I didn't know it was an issue. Right. Because it was only every once in a while, you know, and and then when it became – um, easily accessible on the internet. I started a mortgage company on my own, and and what was something that was every once in a while became almost a daily occurrence for me. And then within about three months of that, then pretty soon I was looking at my marriage, and I'm like, oh, my my marriage with my wife is is horrible. We're fighting all the time. You, we're yelling. We're just not connecting. We're not. Um, we're not close to each other anymore. And so I'm going to start an affair. So I started an affair with a, a colleague of mine, that, not a colleague, she was um, just an account rep that would come in from a mortgage company and started that and that carried on for 20 months. And then there were multiple affairs during that time as well. And my wife, she knew, but she didn't know. Uh, she would ask me and she would she would even know the person. She's like, are you having an affair with so-and-so? And I'm like, no, I would never do that. You know, I would, I would do everything I could to, to get away from that. Mm-hmm. And, and um, within... Uh, or for a while, I actually got caught for one, and went through uh, the disciplinary court through, the, obviously through the, through the LDS Church. And um, during that time, I just I was like, well, I just hope they would excommunicate me from the church because if I'm only getting caught for one, I that would be perfect because in a year I could be rebaptized, be totally forgiven of all my sins, and I don't even have to tell my wife, and that'd be like perfect. So. That was just a, something that the adversary had on me, and and so then I got to the point where I was like, um, oh, well, I got disfellowshipped at that time, and then um, I still continued affair an affair with a friend's my wife that I was having an affair with, and um, and then I was getting ready to go on the deer hunt, and my um, I had just dropped her off. We were, I was dropping her off at the her work again, and we had just because we had just left the alcohol store because I started drinking, and. Um, Pretty soon, uh, I, my phone started ringing, and, and I didn't answer it because I was with her. And then she, her phone rang, and asked her husband, and she looks at me, and she goes, he knows. Um, so her husband found out. He had called my wife, told her, and so she was blowing up my phone, and she's like, you need to come home right now. And um, so I'm like, all right. So I started heading home, and, and I wasn't going to – I already thought I'm not going to tell her about the alcohol. So I dropped my alcohol off at my old house that we had just moved away from 10 days before. And then by the time I got home, my mom called me, and she's like, you need to call 911. Autumn's tried to kill herself. So my mom had made it to my house before I did, and then she called me. And so I, I ran in the home. Uh, my four-year-old son opened the door, and he's like, Dad, Mom's sick on the floor. 
And so I ran in and I just picked Autumn up and, and she was in and out of consciousness. And um, I just started bawling and just praying to God that, that he would let her live. Um, I would stop everything. I would stop the pornography. I'd stop the um, being with women, everything. And I would, I would do everything if I would stop everything if she would, he would just let her live. And she spent three days in the ICU and another week in the hospital. And during that time, she would ask me questions. I was only allowed in there like 10 minutes at a time because uh, her heart rate would go crazy. And so she would ask me, and I started coming out with letting her know. She would like, are you having an affair with so-and-so, or did you? And I'm like, yeah, and, and she would keep asking those questions. So um, then we um, – after that, she she came home. We started – uh, some counseling and and went through some things and and I was then later excommunicated and then we started a program called Lifestar Network and that's how I know Dan uh, is meeting him through that and um, we started that program together and and there were still some things that I was holding on to that I wasn't ever gonna tell my wife that an affair and everything and so um, I was just I started the recovery program and we started working it together but I wasn't being honest. And I was lying to her. I was lying to myself and those around me through the whole thing. And and then it just got to the point where even after a year, um, I started affairs again. After a year after everything came out. And a little bit after that, we had gone through the, the recovery program and stuff. We're almost done. And I just finally hated the person that I had become. Now, were you still looking at pornography during that time as well? So. This is about six months after I had stopped looking at pornography and about three months after I had stopped um, being with other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just because I, I wasn't, like, looking for it. And I had some experiences that, that made me realize that I needed to make changes in my life. Um, since I was excommunicated from my from the church, then I was like, um, God reached down one day and, and showed me that I needed to have, or my family needed me to be back as a member of the church and have the priesthood again and and be part of that. So I um, finally just came out with everything. I laid everything out to, to my wife from growing up as a kid through the rest of my life. I laid everything out to her and started Lifestar back over again and was doing um, really well. I, I like did complete lifestyle change at that time. I would blind carbon copy my wife on every email that I would send. I removed all the women off my instant messenger because that was my way of grooming women. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really started connecting with my wife every day because I was going through things every single day with her. I was checking in with her of how I'm feeling emotionally, sexually, physically, spiritually. And it taught me how to like finally be honest with her because I'd never done that before. And so I was able to, as I started to make all these different changes, I started making, um, I started praying. And praying for me was something that I only do if I ever needed it. Like if if that was my only time to ever talk to God. Like if I was going to be in trouble for something, I'm like, can I not be? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can I not be in trouble? How do I get out of this one? Yeah. Yeah. So so I needed to Mm. make some changes because I was like, I'd never given my wife 100% and I'd never given my church 100%, but I wonder what will happen if I do. So Autumn... How do you find the trust? How how does that work its way back in? Good question. I get asked that question a lot. For me, I when we started our recovery program, I didn't even know that sexual addiction was an addiction. 
I thought we would start this recovery program and in three months, we'd just be done and we'd never have to deal with anything again. Well, And, and with sexual addiction, and I, I'm not trying to make light of anything, but when you normally hear about it, it's usually a celebrity and everybody just kind of poo-poos it. Yeah. You know, oh, it's just a celebrity making excuses. But it is actually a thing and and you've learned about that. Now, how does that – obviously, we know how, how Chris – how it's manifested itself. But for you and, and the recovery process for you – how and and the recovery process for your relationship so for me i started the program um and about 6 weeks into the program we had a really i had like an aha moment um with a therapist and i decided at that time that i was going to do whatever it took to heal my own life and whatever it took to heal chris's life which is codependent behavior mm-hmm. um you know, I think as a wife or spouse or mother or son or daughter of an addict, we become codependent. We'll do anything we can to help fix um, the person that we love the most in addition to healing our own lives. And so I decided at that time that I was going to complete the program. I'd do whatever it took to heal my own life. I would do the work. Um, there was extraneous work involved. Um, therapy. I went to group therapy and then regular therapy and I did the workbooks. And um, I just felt like something was still off with Chris. I would come home from my group and be really excited about what I had learned and my assignments that I was doing. And I'd ask him, hey, do you have you done this? And he'd be like, no, I'm going to do it right before group. And just things kept feeling off to me. Um, And My trust, obviously, as a spouse, your trust just goes right out the window. And I was doing a lot of crazy, I call it crazy making. I was just hypersensitive to his phone, his texts, his computer. Uh, My dad actually taught me how to hack into his computer. So I went to his work one day and hacked into his computer and found some images um, and confronted him about it. And I realized after... 18 months, it's really interesting. He talks about how he had an experience about that same time that he had his experience, I had mine. And I was sitting in my kitchen just going nuts one day. And just, I've got to look at his phone tonight. And I, where has he been? And I would call him like 10 and 20 times a day. What are you doing right now? Who are you with? Did you go to lunch today? Where did you get lunch? Who did you sit with when you were at lunch? Just a lot of questions. And I was just out of control of my own life and in our relationship. And that is normal. I think that's a normal thing that wives go through. Um, it's And loved ones, I, I think children go through those things with an addict parent as well if they're an older child. It's because you are wanting to take care of things, but you don't know how and you're at, you can't manage things. And I remember just kneeling in my kitchen that day, sobbing and praying to God, please take this from me for five minutes. Please. I can't do this anymore. And I just had this amazing urge or feeling come over me that said, you let me take care of Chris and you take care of you. And no matter what happens, you will be okay. And that was kind of, it was like the middle of my recovery, I was like, okay, I can do this. 
I don't know what this is going to look like. Um, it's the hardest run I've ever been down. Um, recovery isn't easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, but I knew that I could heal my own life. And I knew that if I was going to stay married, Chris was going to have to do a lot of lifestyle changes, which he started to do. Um, and that I couldn't be married to somebody that wasn't in recovery for the rest of their life. And if I was going to be divorced, I would be okay, which was huge for me because I was so scared of what that was going to look like if that happened. And it's interesting when that happened, I just like this huge weight lifted off of me and I felt like I could conquer, really conquer the world. And then he started his recovery process over and um, I physically saw him change. Like people are all, how do you physically someone ch- see someone change? Like I saw this light in Chris that I had seen glimpses of throughout our marriage, but really just saw him in this whole new light after he had shared with me everything. And he was really trying. Now, some of the stuff he told me every day was really hard for me when he would check in. That was hard. Um, and I don't want to discredit spouses that are going through that. Um, he would come to me sometimes and say things, and I would get angry and be like, are you use, utilizing your group? Are you utilizing your 12-step? Are you utilizing your counseling? Are you checking in with the guys in your group? Because guess what? You're, I'm the wrong person to be doing that with because a spouse shouldn't be your support person in recovery. They need to have another. I mean, I am his support. I Obviously, I love him, but they need a support network that they can go to. Um, it's just... it was a very good road for me to go down. And then trust, you talked about the trust at the very beginning. The trust came back after about a year of him coming out finally. And the trust came back because he was giving me safety. And by safety, I mean emotional safety. And he was um, validating my feelings, which he had never done before. It was always, there was always an excuse. Well, you're just feeling that way because you're crazy or you're just feeling that way because your dad did this or he never validated my feelings before. And he started validating my feelings um, and he started, he talked about blind carbon copying me. He'd be like, I'd ask him for his phone. Yeah, here, here you go. Here's my phone. You know, you have access to this. And slowly over time, it turned into me not needing that anymore and me getting validation for myself. Well, and his honesty with you. I'm I'm sure that you realized okay, this is true honesty. Yeah. It it's not what it had been before. This this is a different a different Chris. That is exactly correct. Amazing. Thank you guys for sharing your story. It's it's incredible and it's inspiring and you know, uh, the two of you just amaze me. And and I appreciate you guys coming in so much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. So, Dan, let's wrap up here just a little bit and let's talk uh, a little bit more about how do people get the registration and the hours. Uh, It starts at 9 o'clock on February the 23rd, which is a Saturday, and it's at the Salt Palace. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, at the Salt Palace. How do they get the registration taken care of and and become a part of this? Because there's just so many different avenues as I was looking at what the speakers you have coming in. It's just like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, that one's about relationships. Oh, that's about kids. That, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it covers just a multitude. 
I, I'm not even sure how you fit it all in in one day, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long process. The Utah Coalition Board, which I'm a member of, it goes through a lot of painstakingly uh, events and discussions to make sure that we can get the right people to address mm-hmm. the right subjects and try to fit it into a day's program. We could probably do it three or four days, but people don't usually have that. So it's utahcoalition.org is mm-hmm. where you can go online to take a look at the schedule, look at the sessions that are available, uh, see how to register. You can register right there. Or like I say, you can register at the door. It would be another $5 if you do. And be able to see uh, what are the uh, sessions that would be most of interest to you. Invite your friends. Invite your church leader to come because there will be sessions really pretty much for everyone. And uh, people like Autumn and Chris are there to share their stories. Uh, And these are the heroes. Chris and Autumn are the heroes in Mm -hmm. this process. They're the warriors that are battling this and have gone through a lot of struggle and trial and challenge themselves. But they've come out victorious, and they're still working at it, aren't you? Yep, it's, and and will be like, like you said, uh, Autumn. It, it'll be a lifetime process, absolutely. And I wish you both the very best of luck in it. Thank you. Yeah. Utah Coalition Against Pornography again. The conference February twenty third, Salt Palace Convention Center. UtahCoalition dot org is where you go for all the information. You can also get your uh, registration a little early right there. And I just want to thank you all for joining us today. And thank everyone for listening on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. If you want more information on the conference, again, it's utahcoalition.org. That's utahcoalition.org. And you can also check it out at fm100.com. We'll have links there.